Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Betty Choi. Dr. Choi is a board-certified pediatrician, author, and education advocate. She's also the mother of two children, including a food allergy warrior. Following her clinical experience at Boston Children's Hospital and UCLA Medical Center, she has devoted her career to creating educational resources for healthcare professionals, families, and schools. Her mission is to make education accessible and relatable, especially for children. Her new children's book, Human Body Learning Lab, will be released by Story Publishing in November 2022. This book will bring fascinating science facts to life with hands-on learning activities, and it's on my list of books that I want to add to our library. Dr. Choi also has a new education website for children that I will put into the show notes. In today's episode, Dr. Choi will share her personal family experience with severe anaphylactic food allergies, how they've dealt with it, why they happen, and what can be done about it. In the second half of the episode, she will address questions on oral immunotherapy, why allergies may be more prevalent in today's children, and more. Let's dive in. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, everyone. I have Dr. Choi here today to chat with us. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us and talk to us about pediatric allergies. Thank you so much for having me here, Lindsay. I'm just so grateful to talk about food allergies with you and your listeners. I just think this topic is so important to uh, so many families, and uh, we've been personally affected by it too. So I hope that we can bring more awareness and support to this condition. Yes. And like we we're chatting about right prior to jumping on is, you know, we hope that this this episode makes you feel like you're seen and heard and also just throws in a little bit of some education in there too, which can be really helpful, especially if you're a parent of, you know, a child that has allergies, food allergies. So I think it would be great to start talking about this is this can be very intense. And so we're just going to like very lightly skim the surface about, you know, how we get to food allergies, like why that happens. So basically, we have our immune system, right? And so the 
best way, and I think pretty much all like medical schools, PA schools, nursing school probably teaches it this way, but basically your immune system is, you know, it's this army. It's like this first line of defense. You have your white blood cells, you have your antibodies, and they are there to help us fight off germs and fight off toxins. And so, Dr. Troy, what are some of the things that can happen when our immune system is having this like overreaction or underreaction? What are some things that can happen? Yeah, so just like any part of the body, just some sometimes randomly, it can just be a little wonky. So sometimes the immune system can be underreactive and it has trouble rounding up their troops of white blood cells and antibodies to fight infection. So we call that immunodeficiency, and that's when the immune system is not um, working the way it's supposed to be. And then there are other types of immune system issues where it can be the other extreme, where it's overreactive, it's hypersensitive, and there are different kinds of this as well. So one type is that sometimes the immune system can attack different parts of our own body. And this is what happens with autoimmune diseases, like it could be the knee or certain blood cells. And then the other type of overreaction it can have is to different things that can enter our body. So like pollen from the environment or food proteins in a snack that are not normally supposed to bother us. So our white blood cells and our antibodies, specifically the IgE kind of antibodies, get a little angry and overreactive when they see certain things. And that's what happens in allergic reactions. Yes. And specifically with what we're going to be talking about today, I would love to hear more about, obviously, your pediatrician, you know uh, a lot about this, but you know firsthand because one of your children has a food allergy. So if you just want to kind of dive into that and talk about how you found out and then, you know, how this is affecting life, because I know this can be, it can be really hard for a parent to find out that their child has, you know, for example, one of the most common is a peanut allergy and And it's like, well, how is my kid going to live a regular life when they have to worry about going to school and I have to worry about them going to school and being exposed to this on a daily basis? You know, it can be scary. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I hope I don't get too emotional to talk about this, but even as a physician and also being married to a physician, I always felt very comfortable with the diagnosis and treating it in the hospital. But then when it came to my own child and seeing him have a reaction for the first time, it was like a whole new ballgame. And so if you're someone who's in a similar position, I totally feel for you. And it can be quite a steep learning curve in learning how to adjust to life with food allergies. But it does get a little bit better and easier over time with support. So what happened was when my son was around in his baby years, so we were introducing solids at that time the guidelines had changed and they had recommended starting a little bit earlier at four months. And the reason the guidelines had changed is that a recent research study showed that when children are exposed to food proteins and different kinds of proteins earlier, their immune system can get used to it and probably handle, initially handle these different types of food allergies. Maybe it can prevent certain food allergies. So we had explored a few solids at that time. He just wasn't really into it. So, you know, little by little, we'd just gently introduce. And I remember around, he was maybe around six months old, he had just a little sip of a green smoothie that I made. And I remember at that time, with my first child, we'd been very careful about spacing everything out. And then with our second child, we're like, well, you know, there's no food allergies in our family and everything's been going great so far with the other things he tried. Let's just try a little sip. And lo and behold, that time when we felt a little more laid back and relaxed, that was the time he had his first serious allergic reaction. He just blew up in hives and his face was swollen and it was just really hard to see him that way. And we didn't have any rescue medication with us at that time because this was the first time it happened. So we had to call 911 and paramedics had to come to help treat him and, and everything. So that was the first time we had found out that he was allergic to something and we weren't exactly sure what it was until later we did some testing and food challenges to try to pinpoint what exactly he was allergic to. And then over time we found out that he is anaphylactic to dairy products like milk, cheese, yogurt, creams, all of that stuff. And eggs, he reacted to scrambled eggs when he tried that and also cashews and pistachios and 
we think that he's allergic to sesame. That's the only one that we're not sure if it's a blood test positive or skin test positive, but not actually a true food allergy. But we're assuming it is based on his test results. So he's got a lot of different allergies that we've gotten used to learning how to avoid and keep out of his diet and just be very careful about living with those restrictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's a, that's a really hard one. I mean, I grew up, so when I was, oh gosh, maybe five-ish, I would say, I, I became really ill. I was actually out of school for quite a long time because they were trying to figure out what was going on. Turns out I was uh, lactose intolerant, which is very different than being anaphylactic to dairy products in general, but similar in the way that it really needed to be avoided completely. And I mean, even, I don't know if it's like this with your son, but even you could put like a tiny piece of shredded cheese, like, you know, a bag of shredded cheese, like one little morsel of shredded cheese into my food and I would be sick for 24 hours. Like it was really, really, really intense when I was younger. So I had to completely avoid any dairy products at all. And lactose intolerance is obviously more, it's it's an intolerance and it's not an anaphylactic um, reaction. But as I got older, interestingly enough, I like introduced it pretty consistently when I was in college because I more or less was kind of just fed up with it. (laughs) And you know, what's crazy is that like now at 37, I am, I can eat anything and everything dairy related and I have absolutely no reaction to it. So it's like one of those things that I just completely grew out of. But I just wanted to mention that just because, you know, there's probably people listening. They're like, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm allergic to dairy products too. I'm lactose intolerant, but it is, it is very different. I don't know if you want to kind of touch on that a little bit, but. Yeah, sure. So I think that the entire diagnosis can be kind of confusing because there are just so many different types of food reactions people can get and they all can cause different types of problems. And, and not one is, you know, I don't want to invalidate, invalidate any, anybody's symptoms or challenges that they experience. But understanding the differences is just really important because what's happening inside the body is different. So therefore, the treatment and the way you approach the condition is different. So so it can be really tricky because different types of reactions, so the same foods like milk, for example, a milk allergy is different from a lactose intolerance because for a milk allergy, what's happening is the immune system is kind of freaking out. The IgE antibodies are triggering certain cells called mast cells to release all these chemicals that can go haywire and just really cause the body to be inflamed in a lot of different areas. Whereas lactose intolerance, it's more at the level of the intestines and certain enzymes not working and processing the lactose uh, sugar. So knowing the differences is super important because then you can target the treatment appropriately and the way people live around those certain conditions are different too. So for example, my son, he's also very sensitive that if he has a, like if the wrong spoon is used. So if we were at a restaurant actually last summer and he was getting what he thought was coconut sorbet and the restaurant, they were very, very wonderful with communicating with us. And they had uh, different eyes on the chef that was preparing the sorbet, but we're not sure at some point someone probably accidentally mixed up the spoons and mixed it up with maybe a ice cream spoon because the color is white. And that sent my son off into a horrible anaphylactic reaction just minutes after finishing his sorbet, coughing, difficulty breathing, hives, and just from a very invisible amount of of dairy. That is, that is, I mean, that's crazy. I, you know, you hear about, I, you know, I don't know how common, I'm sure you kind of have some statistics, but how common, you know, like a dairy anaphylactic reaction is. I mean, I know very little people that have like an anaphylaxis to that. It's, you know, you hear about peanuts as being the most common or, you know, other things, but I feel like to have anaphylaxis to dairy has to be so incredibly difficult just because there are so, I mean, so many different things that have traces of dairy in it. How has your life changed with him? Like how, I mean, I can't imagine how hard this, do you just keep it out of the house completely? Like, have you gone dairy free for your whole family or how do you manage that? Yeah. So I think it's been a work in progress. So we took some time in the beginning to kind of figure out. So if anyone is in a similar situation, it can sometimes take months to figure out how your 
family wants to adjust to these kinds of diagnoses. So some people, they keep the food that they're allergic to in the home and others could completely restrict depending on how sensitive someone might be. And if they're worried about you know, washing food off of a pot or sponge, those are different things to think about. But sometimes if there's a lot of food allergies, it can be hard to restrict for other people in the family. If maybe the, the other relatives or other siblings, they need a little bit of those foods in their diet. It just really depends on what the family style lifestyle is and what their personal needs are. For our particular family, we initially tried to have some of the foods at home, but then I just discovered that, for example, like if I made scrambled eggs for my daughter and then I washed the pot and then made something else for my son, he would break out in hives, even though he wasn't allergic to that food I just made in it. So then it became just very difficult to think about like, oh, you know, I thought I washed it really clean, but I guess not. So for us, we just found it easier to just cut it out completely from our diet at home and just kind of be on the same page. I think part of it also is we just felt a little guilty eating things in front of him that he can't eat. And just, it just didn't feel right to just have a dairy ice cream while he's just watching, for example. But the good thing is we found a lot of things that our whole family can enjoy together. And the silver lining in a way is that we've all been healthier because instead of just kind of reflexively like ordering like the way we would before because we were just so tired and just we just not really think about what we were eating, we've just been a lot more mindful about what we choose. And because we're forced to cook a lot more and just check labels, I feel like we're all just more healthier in a way because we are all consuming things that are fresh from from our own kitchen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So how has he adjusted to this? Like going to school and handling playdates and going to birthday parties? And, you know, how often do you like go out to eat because of this? And I mean, tra- like what if you were to travel, you know, internationally, do you worry that they're not going to like food wise, you know, how would you eat if you were to go on, you know, a trip somewhere? And do you have to do research first? Like, how do you manage all that? Yeah, those are really great questions. So I would say that our life has infinitely been involved a lot more planning. (laughs) We're not as spontaneous as we used to be. So I guess we'll start with school. So I was a little bit hesitant about sending him to school when he was younger. I know that a lot of kids with food allergies, they do do great in daycare and preschool. But for us, we just felt like it would be better if he was a little bit older, just for our personal comfort level. And so this was his first year at preschool, and he's done wonderfully. And I only wish that we started sooner, actually, because the school has been just, just a wonderful, wonderful experience for him. So the main things that we did before we started school were meeting with the teachers. So my son actually has four teachers in this classroom. He's in the Montessori school. And so there's a lot of teachers and a lot of people involved, and they're all very, very caring. So I met with all of them before school, and I talked to them about the symptoms that he'd experienced. And even though they had had prior training beforehand, it's just a different experience when you talk to the parent directly. So I highly recommend anybody who's in the situation that even if you know that the school is trained, just to try to set up up a schedule, because I I really do believe that teachers want to be on the same team and the same page as you. And they certainly don't want to have a child who's sick in their classroom. So we had talked about symptoms to look out for and how they use an epinephrine pen, which is the most important medication that a child with food allergies should always carry and have near them. Things that we talked about were also how the seating would be arranged during snack time and lunchtime. And so I guess the silver lining of the pandemic is that has been that the kids are spread apart anyways for lunch. So instead of sitting at group tables, everybody's three feet apart, three feet apart still, and they're still separated. My son doesn't have to feel like he's by himself at lunch because everybody's kind of at their own table. But he's been able to eat lunch next to other kids or near other kids who are eating pizza or cheese sticks and all sorts of various things. And he's been totally okay. And then for birthday treats or snacks, the teachers have been wonderful about texting me. They'll text me a picture of the nutrition facts and ingredients so I can see whether or not that there are any food allergies in there. And they can check themselves too, but I just appreciate that they know that it's really important for me to see it too. 
and we just have multiple eyes on the ingredients just because you know those words are so small and it's just good to be extra careful. Other things that are helpful for preparing for school. Some schools have written emergency action plans. And so we crafted our own, but legally public schools are supposed to offer 504 plans, I believe, for children with medical conditions and other accommodations. So that may be something that the family should, may want to explore. And then for play dates. So I have to confess that we have been on more on the cautious side, maybe compared to more families. And so for us, we just felt like being outdoors for playdates felt a lot more comfortable rather than in someone's home where, not sh- where you're not sure where toddlers are, have been, can crawl around. Now that my son's older, it's a little bit different. But when he was younger and we did have other kids over, I just remember feeling super nervous if a parent forgot and brought like a really crumbly dairy egg snack for their child. And it's just really guilty because I know that parents have, you know, they're just, it's so hard to remember everything and they're working hard to fill, <laughs> feed their kids and pack, pack food for their kids. And it's hard to keep track, but um, I just feel nervous about people coming over with like milk, for example, for their kids in their bottle and just accidentally spilling in our home. So we just felt that in those early years, it was a lot easier to have outdoor playdates. And since we're in California, we're really lucky that outdoor playdates are just, we can do that all year round. And then going to other people's homes, I usually try to make the families aware if we're, you know, for good friends, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to share and just be open about so that they can, can understand why you might not be interested in eating their food. It's not nothing personal. We're just, we're just trying to be on the same page with our son. So he doesn't feel left out. So this, those are the, some, some of the conversations that we have when we're spending time with our friends. But it does get tricky with birthday parties. We're still figuring out how to help him feel as included as he can during other people's celebrations. Mm, um, yeah, I know. Because he's a, at the age. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, I mean, those are the staples. And yeah. we probably would be in the same situation if we didn't have food allergies because it's just very convenient. And, but yeah, we're still working on that. It's a, definitely a, a learning process every yeah. every day, every year. I, I bet. So we didn't kind of describe this in the beginning, but I think it might be helpful. So, you know, we're, u- we're using this word anaphylaxis, which I feel like if you are somebody that has allergies or someone who has a child with allergies, you probably know what this means, but not everybody might know what it means. And so do you mind just kind of describing what anaphylaxis is and what the symptoms of anaphylaxis are compared to just like a simple, you know, people can have food allergies, but they're not necessarily anaphylactic and they don't have those specific symptoms. And they'll, you know, instead they might have, they might feel itchy after they eat a certain food or they may get a localized rash or something like that, but they don't necessarily have an anaphylactic reaction. I think it might be um, helpful just to kind of define what is an anaphylactic reaction and what are some of the symptoms you have. Sure. I think that's a really great question. And I just want to go back a little bit further to the science that we were talking about before, like the army analogy, uh, because I think this helps understand with what's happening inside the body and then also treatment, which we can talk about in a little bit too. So going back to that army analogy, similar to how soldiers might sit on a tank and work together to look at, fend off threats. So we have the IgE antibodies, which are like the soldiers. And they often sit on cells called mast cells. These are a type of white cell, white blood cell. And the IgE antibodies, so they're sitting on these mast cells, you know, like the tank, and they're looking around. They're looking around the blood. And then if they spot a food protein that they consider to be a threat, it triggers the tank. So the antibody will bind to the food protein. It will trigger the tank. It will trigger the mast cells to start firing. And when the mast cells start firing, they break down and they let out different types of chemicals that cause inflammation. And so most of the time, those chemicals tend to irritate the skin and cause hives, which is a red bumpy rash that's very itchy. And most people know about that because you can see it. And it's also one of the more common reactions. But sometimes those chemicals because they're going around in the bloodstream, they can affect other organs like the airway, the heart, the digestive tract. So this is why people can have allergic reactions that affect different parts of the body. So that's when you see some swelling in the mouth, the 
nasal congestion that, and new coughs that happen, wheezing. Sometimes you can see changes in the way the heart is beating like, and the blood pressure can change because the blood vessels can dilate. And then sometimes the digestive system is affected. So sometimes children, they can start vomiting, they can have stomach aches, they can feel nauseous. It can sometimes feel kind of random which organs are affected. But the good news is that there are sheets that you can print out. And if anybody has a food allergy, it's really important to print out something called an allergy action plan so that they have this right on paper. You don't have to memorize all of the science and all of the symptoms. You can just look at the sheet of paper and say, wait, is this, what kind of symptoms are my kids having? Is this considered severe? Is this considered mild? And then there's a really great acronym that I uh, I think is helpful to kind of summarize all those symptoms. So it's think fast. So F in the F-A-S-T for fast. So F is face. So any sort of swelling of the face or the tongue. Airway is A. So anything that could be affecting the airway should be considered serious. Stomach, stomach pain, nausea, vomiting, sometimes that can be considered serious. And anything that affects teeth, so teeth total body, that's definitely serious. And so if you're not sure, it's always good to have this medication called epinephrine on hand and to give that right away. And if you are seeing these different symptoms pop up throughout the body, it's really important to give epinephrine as soon as you can. So epinephrine is a medication. It's a shot that should be given in the outer thigh, the middle part of the outer thigh when a severe allergic reaction is happening. So that's what we call anaphylaxis, a severe allergic reaction. And so when someone is having anaphylaxis, this is the most important medication that can really be life-saving. And it really works best if it's given within 15 minutes of the reaction. So it's something that you just don't want to wait about. I think understandably, people are hesitant because it's a needle and people are, they feel bad to to give something like that to a child, Mm -hmm. especially if they're not familiar with it or if it's the first time. But I think it's super important to know that this is is one of the most important medications. And I'm sure you've probably used it a lot in the emergency Mm -hmm. department when you're Mm -hmm. working. And I wonder if you've seen hesitation or worries or questions in your practice as well with using the medication. I have. I mean, I haven't because most of the people I've seen are like, give me that. You know, <laughs> give me the right EpiPen. I mean, I've even given people an EpiPen that didn't necessarily present with an anaphylactic reaction, but did present with a pretty severe allergic reaction that could progress to an anaphylactic reaction. And so, in my opinion, it's obviously much better to have an EpiPen on hand than to not. Obviously, yeah. so I I usually always, you know, I'm I'm very generous when when giving EpiPens with people that have had you know pretty significant allergic reaction to something specific, or even if it wasn't something specific. I mean, I've had people come in where they've been like, you know, I consistently go outside in the spring and I've been getting these rashes and all of a sudden today I got the rash, but I also couldn't breathe. I also, you know, X, Y, Z, they're going to get an EpiPen because I don't know the next time they go out in the spring, it could be different, you know, and they could be reacting to it in a, in a worse way. The other thing that I just wanted to add to what you had said is that if you have somebody else with you after you've given the epi or while you're giving the epi, just make sure someone's calling 911. It's obviously very important. You don't want to give that medication and then not go to the hospital. You have to do both. You have to give the medication and then also be monitored afterwards when you give a medication like that. So we always obviously tell people, you know, when and if you ever have to use this medication, please dial 911 and, you know, have EMS transport you to the hospital so that we can make sure that your heart and everything looks looks good after you receive a medication like that. Or, you know, if if you might need something else, you know, later down the road in like a half an hour or an hour from that. So for the epinephrine shots, there's different ways that the medication can be given. The EpiPen is probably the most popular one that people know about. And there's a medication called AVQ that's also really popular that device actually talks you through the steps. And there's also generic versions too now. The medication can be available at different price points. I think the important thing to know is that these medications, they usually come in what people call a twin pack. So there looks like there's two of the same medication in the pack that you get from the pharmacy. And a common mistake I see people do is they think, oh, I can keep one in my purse and then I'll give another one to someone else. But it's really important to always carry both together because 
you just never know if you need both. Or sometimes maybe the first one maybe didn't work for whatever reason. So you want to have a backup. It's always good to have more. And I personally try to refill my EpiPens at almost like every month, even if we didn't use it. So I always have an excessive supply yeah. in my home, in my school, in my purse, like just pretty much everywhere. Well, you want to have one, you know. yeah, one in your car, one in your purse, one in your, you know, like, yeah. I don't know, like you might forget your purse, but you have one inside your house or, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause yeah. it's just normal, you know, we have different bags and it's easy to forget and leave something behind. And then also like sometimes you might forget and leave it out in the sun and then you have to get a new pack Um, Because you want to keep the temperature pretty even and cool for these medications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, besides Epi, are there any other medications that you carry with you on a daily basis, like just in case? Well, that's a really good question. So I think that most people know about Benadryl and antihistamines. And so I personally don't carry Benadryl or antihistamines because the only medication that I want to remember in my mental load of all the things I need to remember as a mom and, and, and all the daily responsibilities. Epinephrine is the one I always keep in my bag. Benadryl is a helpful medication though, and it is helpful for mild reactions. So if someone just has hives, that's considered a mild reaction. And that is something where Benadryl can be helpful or the generic version too, not to give a shout out to a brand. But so antihistamines, they work by blocking histamine. And histamine is one of those chemicals that I was talking about. The mast cells were angry, they broke down, and they released all of these chemicals into the bloodstream. And histamine is one of them. So Benadryl does a good job of blocking that specific chemical. But the problem is that it's not helpful for all the other different chemicals that are released by the cell, like the prostaglandins and other things that can irritate the airway and the cardiovascular system. So the reason I try not to stress that medication as much is that I think sometimes people are, they're in a bind, they're child is having a reaction, they're not sure which medication to grab. And so they're kind of debating between the two. So if you're ever debating, epinephrine is always the one to reach for first. The tricky thing is that antihistamines, sometimes if you give that first, it can maybe dampen some of the symptoms. And you're not, you might not realize that, oh, actually this more is going on to the body and and it can potentially delay life-saving epinephrine treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So say something does happen where your child does have an anaphylactic episode, which obviously can be very scary both for the child and for the parent. How do you debrief afterwards with your child? Oh, we've done this so many times. So I would like to kind of talk about debriefing with the child and also any siblings or other people around who are, who are watching. So this also depends on the child's age. For younger children, they have the benefit of just naturally being playful and learning through play. So I use that a lot for difficult and challenging situations, not to try to diminish anything that has happened, but I think that it can be hard to use words sometimes with children and, and to kind of put them on the spot for something that's happened. But it is helpful to kind of get a sense of what they have understood and kind of talk to them about anything that they feel like sharing at the moment. But I've found that sometimes the way that children kind of process is over time. And sometimes it comes out little by little through their play. And so what we've done in our family that has been super helpful is my kids love their stuffed animals and some of their stuffies, they've decided to have food allergies. And so their stuffies, they have food allergies. They all have their personal allergy action plan printed out. Sometimes they wear medical alert bracelets. And my children, they'll play doctor together, doctor, nurse, healthcare professionals, EMS. They have the whole, uh, all the various parts of the team (laughs) set up. And so they act out. Uh, They act out their feelings. They act out their thoughts. They kind of recreate the scene from their perspective. And so meeting them during those moments, I feel like has been the most helpful in helping support my child and also his sibling, also his sister, who has seen some of these scary moments. The other thing that I found that's been super helpful is reading books about other children with food allergies. And I have a a list of that that I'll send to you. And I find that just with, you know, like any, any life experience, stories can just be so powerful. It can just really give a window to other people's 
experiences. It can be just a wonderful way to build empathy and insight, whether or not you have the diagnosis. And for children who do have food allergies, it's a way to have, it's a way they feel seen, to a way to know that they're not alone. So we have a number of books that, that my son really loves, and some of them are about people kind of like him who just go about, you know, the regular life, but they also have these other things to worry about. And so he really likes those stories because you can see that these kids are having fun also, and it's, it's not something that takes over their life. It's a part of their life, but they have a very normal life otherwise. And then some some of these stories that we have, they're like cute uh, animal and insect stories, and these different little animals have allergies too. And I think it kind of goes with their imaginary play and how they like role-playing with their stuffed animals and kind of learning about the different ways to protect themselves and be safe through those stories. Awesome. I have a lot of some good questions, but I also don't want to go over. Is there anything you want to add to like the first part of this conversation before I ask you some uh, more specific questions from my community? Sure. So I think, so there's one particular experience I just wanted to share that was particularly difficult. And I, I don't, I want to share this. I don't want to make anyone feel bad or feel any shame, but I just wanted to highlight probably the most difficult social challenge is how food allergies are perceived by other people. And this is, I think, where the mama bear in me comes out, where you know, luckily so far, I, my child, not that I'm aware of, I don't think there's been any bullying or any hurtful things that have been said, but I know that happens and it can be very scary and dangerous. But for those who don't have food allergies that are listening, I do think it's helpful to kind of think about the way we talk about food with our children. And I know personally that you know, before food allergies, I totally took food for granted. I never thought twice about ordering out in restaurants and things like that. And in fact, I may have felt a little bit annoyed at times when people had to make their requests and all their changes and we were all sitting and waiting. So I feel, feel uh, guilty for participating in that in the past. But I had one particular experience that really stood out. And it was a few years ago during my daughter's class orientation. So it was my daughter, not my son. And so the parents and the children, they were meeting the teacher for the first time. And the teacher made an announcement. She said, good news. This year, our classroom is so lucky. There are no food allergies or sensitivities. That means you can pack anything you want for your kids, even peanut butter. And I was floored when the parents started clapping and cheering with a sigh of relief. So Part of me was, you know, understanding because I know how much of a pain in the neck it is to mm-hmm. pack a lunch mm-hmm. when you're exhausted, and a PBJ is just so convenient. And my son's actually not even allergic to peanut butter, but it was just really heartbreaking to see that reaction and how parents felt that to be a nuisance. Yeah, because it's when when it's your child, it's not quite a nuisance, is it? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, mean, I, no. I get it. Like, I would never ask someone to change their entire diet for our particular particular family, but just that reaction was just very heartbreaking mm-hmm. to see. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that nobody realized that, but I just thought it was really important to share. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that you shared that. We are, our kids preschool had, you know, just a no peanut butter rule in general or no peanut, you know, nut, no nuts at all as a general whole, even if there weren't any children in the school at that time that had a confirmed allergy, they just had it as just like the standard rule. And then when our kids went, you know, they started elementary school. And what I like about this is that they do it by a class, that class by class basis. So if there's a child in the class that has any type of an allergy, whether it be dairy or whether it be peanuts, you know, they just say, you know, there is a class, there is a child in this class that has this allergy. Please don't pack this within your lunches, which I I mean, if I was the parent of the child that had the allergy would make me feel really, really good to know that my child is safe within that classroom, matter what. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that, you know, it's unfortunate that sometimes it takes having had experience with that particular situation. So in this case, you know, having your child have a food allergy that, that makes us realize, oh, you know, like I, 
in the past, I might have not been so compassionate, you know, towards or empathetic, you know, yeah. to, to the family that that does have the food allergies. So I think that's really great that you said that because I mean, I'm even at fault at, you know, when my child went from a school that was, you know, completely nut free to now elementary school, where if my child is in a class that has no allergies, I'm like, yes, like I get to do the, you know, I get to do anything I want for lunches. It makes it so much easier. But it, it is, it's really, really important to just always, I mean, in any case and situation to always you know, be empathetic to the the parents that are dealing with that and the children that are dealing with that because it's not easy. Like, I I just can't even imagine having to worry about that on top of everything else we have to worry about as a parent. That's just, it's so hard. Okay, I'm going to pull up some questions for you. And I think one of the most common questions is about oral immunotherapy. So some people will do this for like peanut allergy treatments Mm -hmm. and things like that. So I don't know if you have any insight to that or what you think about that. Oh, I have lots of thoughts about this one. This could be a whole (laughs) podcast by itself. So we have been kind of just like right on the fence to starting. And actually we were supposed to start last week, but we had to postpone our first appointment. So what oral immunotherapy is, it's basically a way to train the body to hopefully get used to something that it was allergic to. It's supposed to train those antibodies and white cells to realize, hey, actually, it is okay to have this in my body. I should not freak out and cause an allergic reaction. There's still a lot of research that's going on under this. And I will have to say that different allergists have different thoughts about whether or not to even do it. And because this is a therapy that's so individualized, it's probably something that won't be FDA approved just because the treatment protocol is just so individual and the doses are just so specific to a child and what Mm -hmm. they can handle. So what happens is, for example, we are thinking about doing milk immunotherapy. So milk OIT, oral immunotherapy. And what would happen is that the allergist would come up with a solution with a tiny, tiny amount of milk protein in there. And so it should be pretty invisible, like we can't actually see the protein. And my son would try a little bit and see if there's a reaction. And what happens is they would introduce just a tiny bit, a tiny bit more week after week, or sometimes it's every two weeks, depending on the child and the food and how Mm -hmm. severe the condition is. And then they check, they observe at the office to see if there's any, any types of symptoms, even as small as a minor stomach ache or as severe as any breathing problems. And so this is a highly monitored therapy. There's should be epinephrine and other rescue medications on hand just in case. But it is something that is potentially very freeing for a family. It could potentially be a ticket to freedom if a child is able to kind of retrain, if the immune system can be retrained. So there's a lot of ifs, there's a lot of maybes, there's a lot of question marks, but it can give a family a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How successful can this be for people? Do you know, like the percentages of you know people that have gone through immunotherapy and how successful it is? So I think because it's still relatively new, it's hard to say. In terms of research, I believe that the data. I think it's only about like ten years out, so it's hard to know long term. Like if someone's like forty-five years old after they went through OIT. Are they still going to be free of the allergy? It's hard to know. So it's hard to say exactly how successful it might be. A lot of people do drop out. They do give up because it is a very intensive type of process. Now, in addition to the frequent doctor's appointments, you also have to keep taking the solution. And then if you graduate up to the actual food, you have to take that regularly. And that can be very difficult because sometimes the child has gotten so used to avoiding the food, they don't want that in their body. They don't like this. They've developed an aversion to it, or maybe they have, understandably, they feel a little bit nervous about taking it. And it could just be kind of a pain because it turns into kind of like a medication. It's not like fun to maybe have their X number of peanuts per day for certain people. So 
consistency and is, is a big challenge. The other thing that's super challenging about OIT is that you're not supposed to exercise for, I believe it's an hour before the dose of the protein is given, and you're not supposed to exercise for about two hours after. And the main reason is that you just want to keep your body as calm mm. and cool as possible. You just want to keep everything just as relaxed. Yeah, you don't want and any fight or flight. <laughs> yes, you don't want any fight or flight going on. You just want rest and digest, basically. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that can be so difficult if you have an active kid. I know my son, he just loves sports. He's always throwing a ball, kicking a ball. He just needs to move. So I know a lot of people, they bring bust out all the activities, they watch their favorite shows during these types of uh, procedures during the waiting period. But that's a lot to do for months yeah. and years. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So logistics um, are a challenge, in other yes. words. Yes, yes. I mean, I can imagine it would be worth it, especially for like in your case, specifically where it's a food that's very, very common and in a lot of different foods and very much affects, you know, so much of his life where it would be, you know, like I would be really um, excited to at least try it, you know, and see how it would all work out. But I think if we had just one food that we were avoiding, I think that we could maybe, you know, like try to live with that. But I think because it's just so prevalent, especially the, yeah. with the dairy and the egg, just to be able to go to a restaurant and just feel a little bit more free with the options and not as nervous, I think would just yeah. be just so amazing. Yeah. So this is a really good question. So say you're introducing nuts to your child for the first time, whether that's you know peanut butter or what have you, and the parent has a history of an anaphylactic allergy to nuts. How should I be introducing that food to my child? And what are the chances that they also might have an anaphylactic reaction? Well, that's a tricky question. So let me think about this. So the first part was if you have an allergy yourself, how to introduce the food to your child. Yeah. So this is something that I would definitely talk very closely with your allergist and come up with a plan that would be practical for your family because it is important to expose your child to the foods as a potential chance for them to not have the same allergy as you, but also you don't want to develop a reaction yourself. I've seen families try wearing gloves so they're not handling it directly. They're not touching the food directly and also wearing a mask so that they're not breathing it in hopefully, depending on how reactive they are, or if they have a spouse who's not reactive to that food or another caregiver, they can prepare that food for the child. But there is research that shows that when there are allergies in the family, a child is at a higher chance of developing allergy themselves. So it is important to still give that a chance and still try if possible so that Uh, your child can have a better chance of their immune system getting used to those proteins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I know some parents get a little bit nervous about this. What are you watching for specifically when you're introducing foods for for the first time to your baby? So you're trying mango for the first time, you're trying green beans, kiwi, whatever it is for the first time. What am I watching for as far as symptoms and such that might indicate that my child is allergic to that food? So I think this question is best framed with, it's going to be messy. It's going to be like the normal baby stuff. It's going to be messy. It's going to be wild. Probably there might be food on the floor and everywhere. And then in terms of symptoms to look out for, it's sometimes can be a little bit tricky because kids or babies especially have very sensitive skin. And it's normal for kids to have some redness around certain foods, like acidic foods, uh, and around their mouth, especially around their chin, especially if they're drooling and things like that. Mm-hmm. But most commonly, the first time there might not be anything, but if on the second or third exposure as the immune system starts remembering those proteins and deciding whether or not that they can tolerate it, you want to look for the hives that we had talked about before, the bumpy red rash, uh, you want to see if the behavior is changing. And that can be just really tricky in the baby. So if you're ever not sure, definitely ask your your pediatrician, your doctor to help you know brainstorm the situation with you. And any of those symptoms that we had mentioned before, they can happen at any age, like the swelling and the difficulty breathing, the coughing and things like that. So that would be just something to kind of mind aware of at any time. 
But most of the time, it's going to be just a really fun and messy and silly experience to try new foods. Yes. I know our kids like had a lot of like interesting reactions to pasta sauce. Like, and I don't know how common this is with other kids, but my kids love pasta. I don't know any kids that don't love pasta, but you know, we'd put like this red pasta sauce on it. And every time like the pasta had red sauce on it, some of our kids were more reactive than others, but just like this entire, like their entire face, like all around their mouth and like by their nose, it just turned out in this like red screaming red rash that would like last until the next day but it was there was no swelling it was just a rash and it was just like red all basically probably where all of the red sauce was actually touching their skin yeah yeah. and you know they never had any other symptoms with it so like they didn't have any gi upset they didn't have any like no tongue swelling and those are the things you definitely want to make sure that they're not having but it was definitely like this like this rash like where they had like gotten the pasta all over their face and it didn't affect their like hands or anything like this. And they're yeah, obviously eating yeah. it with their hands, but it only affected mm-hmm. like around their mouth. So like, yep. you know, the next day they would even have like <laughs> remnants of it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Um, it ended up going away with all of mine. Some kids it took, you know, a little bit longer, but it's just so interesting how kids react to certain, certain foods. And yeah, I think tomatoes are notorious. They're so acidic. And then also you see yes. it in their poop. It's just like everywhere. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I feel like too. To keep in mind. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay, I was going to say that maybe remember to share that if the reaction is just new and right away, that is something that should kind of raise your eyebrows and you think, hmm. But if it's something that's happening, you know, hours later, it might not even be related to the food at all because usually Mm -hmm. an allergic reaction is happening within minutes or less than an hour of eating that food. Yes. Okay. So just a few very quick ones because I feel like these are really important questions. The first one is, so it looks like this person also has a child that has a dairy and egg allergy. Not sure if it's anaphylaxis or not, but likelihood that my child will outgrow dairy and egg allergy. They don't participate in like an oral immunotherapy. Like, are there, is there a chance that they might just grow out of it eventually? Yeah, that's a really great question. So compared to other foods, milk and dairy Actually, there is a good chance to outgrow. And I believe the statistics, it's about about half of children by the age of five will outgrow their milk and dairy allergy. So sometimes sometimes allergists, they might not even start OIT in those children Mm. because they want to see if their immune system will kind of figure it out on their own. And that was one of the reasons we wanted to wait too, because we wanted to see if there was a chance that maybe our son could could tolerate it on its own, on his own. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be that way. Does it matter if he has an allergy? Like, it, is it less common if there's an anaphylaxis to the to the dairy or the egg to grow out of it, or does it not matter? It's just very random. It's so random, and that's yeah. just, that's, that's, that's so, just so frustrating. But yeah, allergies are so weird. <sighs> it can just start at any age. It can go mm-hmm. away at any age. It can. Some Absolutely people have bizarre. one. People have multiple. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's yeah. A, mystery. Strange. I mean, I guess it's, you know, yeah. just as bizarre as, you know, these autoimmune conditions that just show up out of nowhere and you're like, wait, what, mm-hmm. what? I have what now? <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 It's just so strange. Any insight as to why there is a large rise in food allergies in children? So that is something that I would love to learn more about myself too. What I understand from the research is that it's, they're still trying to figure it out. So there's two leading hypotheses. So one a recent research study showed that the timing of food introduction could be part of the reason. So Mm. probably when we were younger or sometime between when we were born and our kids, there was a trend to hold off on giving peanuts and tree nuts and other allergic foods. People were told to wait. And unfortunately, that seems to possibly have contributed to immune system developing allergies to this particular foods. So that's why the guidelines have changed as more research and information have come, become available to give those highly aller- allergenic foods early, not to wait, not to restrict, not to keep it away from the baby. It's just so the baby has a chance for their immune system to get used to it. There are some other hypotheses that are still kind of being flushed out. You know, some, some things I've heard that are possible. There's the hygiene hypothesis. Perhaps our immune system is do clean during the baby years and it's not developing properly. But then you also hear, you know, 
contradicting things like, well, if you get a lot of infections, you are at higher risk for asthma or other, other things or something like that, you know? So it's really hard to say. And I think the important thing to take away for anybody who's wondering, what could I have done different? What could I have done differently? What should I have done? I hope it's helpful to hear that it's like not your fault. And sometimes you know, everybody gets, has, gets a difficult card at some point. And this happens to be our son's, our family's particular challenge. And, and you learn to, you learn to live with it and thrive with it. I remember thinking he was, my son was exclusively breastfed. I, all the things I never did anything different with my diet compared to my daughter's. I ate all the things that I should have to expose his immune system. We did early introduction, but he still had a lot of severe food allergies. Oh, and he plays, he like rolls around in the grass all the time. <laughs> He's like always <laughs> like out in nature and getting exposed mm-hmm. to lots of things. So you just, you just never know sometimes. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. Okay. I think we should end there. I think that was really informative. I want to ask you two random questions that don't have anything to do with the topic that we talked about today. And the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice to moms, what would it be? So I think the most helpful thing that I try to remember is that you should never do it alone. So I feel like there's this societal pressure to be a super mom, to kind of, oh, you're so great at this and that and do it all. Yeah. I feel like what we should be celebrating is when we can all help each other and support each other and just kind of be there for each other and to not be afraid to ask for help and to reach out and to kind of humble ourselves like that. And I know that's really difficult because we just have so many demands and expectations on us, Mm -hmm. but I really do think that everyone does a lot better when we feel like we're not doing it alone. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's so funny. It took me having four kids to finally realize like I actually like physically couldn't like do certain things anymore. So like I could try, but there's like just no way I could possibly get like, you know, one of my children to this practice or one of my children to like this activity and just started relying on their friends, neighbors that were going to the same place and just being like, oh my gosh, can you take my child? And it's like one of those things where you just wish that you had done it earlier because people are so incredibly willing to help. And in fact, like, I mean, just as a society, we want to help other people. Like I'm constantly wanting to help in some way with everybody that in whatever way I can, but it's like, for some reason, we feel badly about asking for it, but people really do want to help. And it's just going to make your life immensely easier. (laughs) um, I totally agree. Yeah, Yeah. I think there's like a worry that it could be a sign of weakness. And then mm-hmm. everyone's secretly like wishing that they could have someone to share and reach out to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think just yeah. kind of normalizing that importance to reach out is mm-hmm. so, so needed. Yes. Okay. So the last question is, if you could make one meal for your family that everybody would eat, that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? All right. So this is the one, this is our go-to meal, or, or I would say, Maybe I'll say snack because you can add this to just a lot of different dishes. So I love roasted chickpeas and it's so easy. And this is one of my, I feel like my mom wins as allergy mom because it's just so easy <laughs> to kind of bring everywhere. So I take a huge baking sheet. I pour lots of olive oil and garlic salt and I use three cans of chickpeas, garbanzo bees. I try to do low sodium and I spread it out and cover it with all the oil and the seasoning. I spread it out on the baking sheet and then I bake it for, or sorry, I roast it for 400 mm-hmm. of roast it for uh, about, depends on your oven, maybe about 15 to 20 minutes at 400. And I toss it to make sure it's like evenly mm-hmm. roasting part of the way. And then I let it sit on my counter for like part of the day. So it just kind of dries out a little bit and it's such a great snack. It's so yummy. It's so convenient. And then you can just add it to, you can add it to a pasta. You can add it to another dish. So it can be part of a meal or just a snack by itself. I don't know why I've never thought about doing that, but that's like high protein, high fiber. Yeah. Yeah. High protein, high fiber. It's, it's great. (laughs) It fills things up. Yeah. And I'm like constantly always trying to figure out like, obviously put, so I'm trying to introduce even just to my own diet, just like 
protein more often because I feel like as women, for whatever reason, like especially postpartum, like we're just never getting enough protein, even though we think we might be. And that's just a really great way to just have something on the counter that's like, okay, I made these yesterday. And like, it's something that you can just grab on the way that's like really high in protein and healthy, you know? I hope you guys like it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good idea. I'm going to, I love asking people this question because I always find out like, you know, new things that I just haven't thought about doing. So I'm like literally writing it down right now. And it's so easy. I mean, it doesn't have olive oil and like salt, you know, just sitting around. And yeah, I'm have, like, all about of... the shortest, lowest prep meals oh. ever. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that is it. I, I really want to thank you to t- for taking time out of your day. I know it's really hard to jump on here and, and chat for an hour, but it was really great chatting with you, Dr. Choi. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. It was so wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.